so we're, we're, we're still in our history of us as we're going through the Bible, and today we kind of take up after Jesus calmed the storm and he made it to the other side, one of the big events that happened, he met the Gadarene on the other side in the Bible story is the Gadarene demoniac, is a man who was possessed by demons. You probably all have heard this story. Jesus casts the demons out. They go into herd of pigs. The pigs run off a cliff into the sea. So then Jesus, after he does that, uh, he comes right back. I mean, he went all the way across the Sea of Galilee, survived the storm, or, you know, it wasn't a big deal for him, made it through the storm, uh, delivered this one man. This one man wants to co- come back with him. He says, no, I want you to go back and tell your people what ha- ha- God has done for you. And then Jesus comes back to the other side. So now he's back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's in the area of Capernaum, which is where his house is, where he resides uh, at, at this point in his ministry. So, uh, so today we're going to talk about prayer for desperate times. Some of our best praying is when we're desperate because it kind of cuts to the chase. You know, you're, you're not praying flowery prayers or trying to impress anybody. Uh, you're, just, you're just praying the bare necessities because you're, you're desperate. We've all been there at different times where we're desperate for our children, we're desperate for our marriage, we're desperate for our finances or our job or some person that's in dire need. And so we're, we're praying desperate prayers. And this is the prayer of a desperate father. And so he teaches us some principles about prayer and how to pray and how, how to have effect, more effective prayer in, in this desperate prayer. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, so he's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, he went to the east side, uh, the Decapolis, the Decapolis was an area that was settled by Alexander the Great's soldiers. It was, there were a lot of Greeks and Gentiles on that side, hence, there was a lot of, hence the raising of the pigs. It was not a Jewish area. It was a Gentile area. Uh, he went over there. He came right back. This area, uh, the western coast, uh, nearer to Nazareth, Capernaum, is more of a Jewish area. Uh, a large crowd gathered around him, so they were waiting for him to come back. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Now, nothing touches our hearts more than our own children when they're sick. Most of us, through our children's lives, would gladly trade places with them if we could help them suffer less, especially when they're small, when they're in our care, but as a parent, it never really stops in what you're willing to do for your children. And here's a man, he's concerned. We know from other texts that she's 12 years old, about 12 years old. She's a little daughter. Uh, in, in this culture, and she wouldn't be very many years from being married, but he's, you know, she's his precious daughter. And 
there's a, there's a thing, you know, uh, there's a difference as a father between raising boys and raising girls. And it's just different. I mean, I, I'm sure you've noticed this, that boys and girls are different, but uh, there's no, no newsflash. Uh, Everybody's trying to make them the same. They're not the same. They're really different. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a preciousness about a father's relationship with his daughter. That, I mean, with, with, with your sons, you know, it's almost like you feel like your, your role is to toughen them up and get them ready. With your daughter, it, you feel a great need to protect her, especially from those boys that are showing up. It's just different. It's just different. Now, very likely he had seen, Jairus had seen Jesus heal because he's a synagogue official. And we know that Jesus did a healing in the synagogue. Now he's not in the temple in Jerusalem. This is in the synagogue that is in this area, uh, not in Jerusalem, but in the Capernaum area. This is a synagogue and so Jairus is a, is a synagogue official in this area. So it's likely he was in this synagogue when he saw this miracle. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It wasn't against, there were a lot of things against the law, according to the law of God, that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. But they had added extra restrictions beyond the Word of God. They'd added their own traditions, and they actually valued their traditions higher than the Word of God. So, this is one of the things that Jesus is, uh, is dealing with as he's dealing with the religious system that he created, but that they have, they have adulterated. So Jesus is trying to deal with these things. And one of these things is that it's more important to keep the rules that we've made up than to be compassionate, to be loving. That's how often, you know, we often become, we don't want to become rule keepers, but we do want to keep rules. You know, here's, here's the thing about rule keeping. We need to be more fastidious about how we're keeping the rules than we are about everybody else keeping them. The tendency of rule keepers is that we want to call penalties on everybody else instead of ourselves. The, the, the focus always needs to be, if you're going to judge people, you need to start at your own face. <laughs> Not to say that your face needs judging. That wasn't what I was saying. I'm saying you need to look yourself in the mirror. Chris has given me a real question mark, like he didn't have any idea. I think he was asleep anyway, so it doesn't matter. Okay. They were watching to see if it healed him on the Sabbath so he might accuse him. And if you're sleeping, it's not your fault. It's my fault. I mean, this is the most interesting book in the world. And if I make it boring, I don't blame you for it. If you can't stay awake, it's, it's my problem. It's my fault that you were sleeping. 
Not that he wasn't really sleeping. I can't really tell though. He just has that same look all the time. Uh, sorry. Sorry. And he said, I'm gonna, I need to preach and stop, okay? And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he, and he said to him, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath to save life or kill? But they kept silent after looking at them with anger. He's angry, angry because they won't admit that it's better to do good on the Sabbath than not do good on the Sabbath. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. I mean, Jesus didn't even have to say, you know, hand be healed. It just, when he stretched his hand out, the hand that had been withered was restored. It was whole. It was complete. And um, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And then, I mean, think about that. We, we, We have this kind of response two different times. One other time is when he raises Larius, Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Larius was his brother. Uh, he, he wasn't dead. Uh, Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and they, they, when, he, when that happened, they're going to kill him. So, so this response is they're rejecting him as the Messiah. This is to say they are rejecting him, him as the Messiah. So a lot of things that Jesus is doing, he is doing to show that he is the Messiah, that he's Lord over sickness, he's Lord over disease, he's over these things. So Jairus had probably seen Jesus heal this man in the synagogue, and he knew that the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus. He, if he was a leader in the synagogue, he probably would have understood all of this, known all of this, but he was desperate because his daughter was sick. And because his daughter was sick... When he weighed his position in the synagogue in relationship to his daughter getting well, whether he was going to get kicked out of the synagogue because he went to Jesus to see his daughter get healed, he considered that his daughter was more important than his job. He was desperate. He also considered that his job, that his daughter was more important than his reputation because as a synagogue official admitting, you know, Nicodemus came to Jesus at nighttime because he didn't want to, you know, mess up his reputation. So he's, he's considering this. He's thinking, really, in light of my daughter being healed or being well, there is, <laughs> my reputation is worthless. worthless. This is desperate prayer. This is a man who has heard fancy church prayers his whole life. He's heard them in the synagogue, people praying for other people to hear. And he understands what most of us understand is that prayers that are prayed to impress other people are worthless. There's there's no value in in impressive prayers in public. The kingdom of God is not... Enlarged because we're able to say big words when we pray. What, what, what God honors and what God honors, God honors in this situation is that he honors this desperate man. He was humble. He comes and falls at the feet of Jesus because he's desperate. And when Jesus went off with him, so Jesus is following him. They're, they're going to go to his house to pray for the daughter. And a large crowd was following him and pressing on him. There was so many people that it was, you know, 
It was like going to Chick-fil-A on a Saturday, which I did yesterday. And because you can't go today. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had rather gone, gone worse. So this woman had been bleeding for any number of causes for 12 years. Uh, this made her ceremonially unclean, according to, to the biblical Old Testament law. It made her ceremonially unclean. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go to synagogue. She wasn't supposed to touch anybody else because she was ceremonially unclean. Uh, it says that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. And we have to understand that the physicians of Jesus' day didn't understand very much of the internal workings of the body. It was, it was, it was a crime. It was a crime punishable by death if someone was found dissecting a body. Or, or cutting open a, a deceased body to determine what, what the inside looked like. It wasn't that there weren't things that happened and they discovered some things over time. But, but there, there wasn't much real knowledge of the inner workings of the body and there, you know, and at the time. So that most of the stuff that they did, they applied, you know, lotions and potions and and stuff did all they could. One that they were, they 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 were limited in their knowledge. She was broke. She spent all her money trying to find a cure. She was broken. Twelve years of enduring this. She was, uh, you, you know, she was worse off both physically and I'm sure emotionally than she was before. Being sick for a long time is hard. Some of you have endured a long time of pain, and it's very, very difficult. Even today, with the advances of medicine, physicians are still limited in what they can heal. We understand that, right? And I don't know if you know this, but what, what your doctor needs is for you to tell him what medication you need to take. Because they're advertised, so you need to go, because they say, tell your doctor. So you go into your doctor and say, you know, I think I may need... Zeralto or Prozac or I don't even, you know, I mean, it's 80% of the ads are antibiotics and I can't prescribe antibiotics. I'm not a doctor. I can't go and say, Hey, give me some of that. It's crazy. Isn't that a crazy system? I'm just, that's not the sermon. That's just, that's just opinion. Okay. Here's an interesting thing. The third leading cause of death in the United States, according to John Hopkins Hospital, John's, I always get that wrong, it's John's Hopkins Hospital, is medical errors. It's the third cause of death just behind heart disease and cancer. That's not, that's not even counting the fact that if you, that 1.7 million people get sicker in the hospital because they get some kind of infection that they got in the hospital and out of those 1.7 million, 99,000 of those people die from that hospital-born infection. Uh, and then that's not counting the other 
several million people that will die because of medical medicine prescription errors. That's not, and we, we need medicine. Uh, but we just have to understand, it's, we, we should take advantage of every, everything that is available to us. But I would tell you this, take advantage of everything medically that is available to you, but put your trust in Jesus. Amen. Make sure the doctor washed his hands when he comes in the room. I mean, you know, it's just crazy. This woman was desperate. They weren't able to help her. It was beyond their ability. I want to tell you, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in your life that the doctors are going to say, we've done all we can do. Even with the advances we have today, they've done all they can do. We've only had antibiotics since really, really mass-produced antibiotics since the middle of the war, about 1944. It was discovered before that, but it was not mass-produced. Penicillin was not mass-produced before the war. That became necessary. And here at this, 75 years later, we've pretty much run the course of antibiotics. We are in a desperate search of trying to find antibiotics that will kill the things that we have made superbugs by feeding them other antibiotics. And so, that's just another useless fact for you today. So she's desperate. They weren't able to help her. It was on the, beyond their ability. So after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd. <laughs> I always feel like whenever there's a rash statement made, it's Peter that has made this statement. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing on you and you say, who touched me? Like, how do you know who touched you? What are you, the son of God? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling because she's afraid, because she's not supposed to touch anybody. She's fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I did it. I touched the hem of your garment. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That's a good day for her. Now, here's one thing I want you to get from this. A lot of great opportunities in life happen to us as believers of people that God will put in our path while we're on the way to do something else. Jesus was on the way to Jairus' daughter, Jairus' house, to heal Jairus' daughter when this woman comes and touches the hem of his garment in the midst of a crowd, and it stops. He has to stop what he's doing for just a moment. He's delayed. He is distracted. A lot of things will happen in your life that will be a distraction, and a lot of that is what God has put in your path for you to minister God's compassion and love to those people. 
so that maybe as believers, what if we saw, what if we saw, this is a challenge, what if we saw every interaction that we had, every interaction as we went through life, as we're going through life, what if we're seeing every interaction is a, is a divine appointment for me to demonstrate, I don't, I don't mean that I'm going to you know, open up and, and lead them to Christ. I'm saying, but what if it's an opportunity for me to demonstrate the love and compassion of God to people who don't know what it's like? What if, what if I'm to be salt and light to people that are, because there's a lot of people that have been suffering for 12 years, and there's a lot of people that are broken and hurting, and there's a lot of people in great need and pain, and it's not, it's not visible on their face. There's people that you work with, they're in the same kind of situation, their life is a, is a mess. There's people that you're driving next to, and they're driving angry, right? And... It, and if you're not careful, what happens when you're, I don't know if it happens to you, but it happens to me when those jerks cut me off. And maybe, you know, you say, well, I can't have any, I can't have any effect on them by having a good attitude in the car when they cut me off. But I'm, I might learn some self-control. I might learn something. Well, that, well, then, as I'm learning to trust God in that, that will, as I'm going through my life and I am disturbed from the course that I want to take, I can be gracious and I can be loving and I can show the compassion of Christ. Jesus just showed this woman, this broken woman, this hurting woman, this wounded woman. He showed her compassion and the grace of healing. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to show us the Father. No one's seen God at any time. The only begotten God is in the, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Jesus came to show us what the Father is like. This is, this is God saying, I want people to see the compassion and the love and the mercy of God dealing with people that are hurting and in pain. Jesus was moved with compassion. You'll see that all through the New Testament. He was moved with compassion. And then John chapter 20, verse 21 says this. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Which is in essence what he is saying. Tag, you're it. I'm going out. I'm going to send to the Father. But I'm leaving you a job. Just what I did in showing the Father and demonstrating who the Father is, now I want you to demonstrate to the world who the Father is. 24-hour job. Pretty big job, isn't it? While he was still speaking, they came into the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. They came from the house. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the to the official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. All, all faith is imperfect faith. All, all of our faith is mixed with a little struggle and flesh and unbelief. None of us have perfect faith. If we're waiting to have perfect faith for God to do something for us, we're never going to have it. He's struggling, he's struggling, and Jesus recognizes this, says, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. It, would, it was common in this day that they would have had professional mourners that would mourn for a week. So when this daughter was getting very sick and about to die, they, at some point, somebody called the mourners and said, be ready. And they're wailing and making a commotion. They're making a big deal of it. This was to show that she's loved. And so when Jesus comes in and says, you know, uh, you know, she's, why make a commotion? The child's not died, but she's asleep. They began laughing at him, but because they'd seen death. This was their job. Professional mourners. They'd seen death. They knew she wasn't asleep. She was dead. And the tendency is that once you're dead, you stay dead. Notice that? Typically. So why make a commotion? The child's not died but asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand. He said to her, Talitha, come, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. They were amazed. And he gave them strict order, orders. They should tell no one about this. I bet that didn't work. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Always a sign of wellness. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the Lord over sickness. And not just over sickness, but death. He does it with gentleness. Love and compassion. Let's try to do that. Yeah. Let's try to do that. That's what Jesus did. So how can we have effective prayer for desperate times? One is, you see this demonstrating this. There's just two things I want us to tell you. One is humility. These were humble prayers. They were desperate prayers, but they were humble prayers. They were, Jairus throws himself his Self at the feet of Jesus. So does the woman after she's healed. There, there's humility. Jesus told this story about two men who went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And they, and they just tax collector in the New Testament is synonymous with sinner. If you work for the IRS, I'm sorry. It's not the same. But that. Tax collectors were those who had sold out their country for profit. They were greedy people, and they were personally profiting from the pain of others. People kind of considered them the bottom of the pile. So there were two men who went to the temple, one a Pharisee, you know, supposed to be the symbol of holiness and righteousness in in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and the other a tax collector. When the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I like the way he says that. He doesn't say a sinner. He's like, I'm the number one sinner. (laughs) I am the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who is humbled himself will be exalted. You see, we have to be careful. Jairus had served in the temple, in the synagogue, probably for his whole life. And didn't mean that because he had served God all these years that God owed him. You have to be careful of that. You can serve God your whole life. You can give all your money. But it doesn't create a debt relationship with God. This is where we often get in trouble when we're dealing with things that are happening in our life is that we feel like we don't deserve it. It's unfair that it's happened to us. It shouldn't have happened to some to us. I wish it happened to somebody else. That's loving, isn't it? You know. And so we we create this. We feel like God owes us. So we need to always be reminding ourselves is that God doesn't owe us anything. Everything we get from God is a gift of grace. It is a gift. You get salvation. How do you get salvation? Because you were so good, God had to give it to you? No, you get salvation because you recognize that I can't save myself. I need a Savior. You recognize your need for salvation. So everything we get is a gift of grace. Think about this woman. This woman is probably thinking about, this is not fair. You ever think that? This is not fair. These 12 years, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Why did this happen to me? It shouldn't happen to me. She was broken. She was broke. She had suffered for a long time. But what I like about this is that she doesn't pray, God, owe me, but help me. God, you owe me. You owe me because, look, I've suffered longer than all these people. Had no bearing on her healing. So often what happens, we've, we've created in our mind a scenario. We're thinking that there's some certain path of ease or pleasure, some certain path that God owes us because, hey, I was at church Sunday and sat through that sermon. God, you owe me. Go Rams. You know. We have that sense. We, we, we create, oh, I've been given. I've, I've heard people say, they've said things like, well, I don't understand why I had a flat. I've been paying tithes. You know why you had a flat? You ran over a nail. Now, if you had stuffed your tithe money in your tire, it might have stayed up. But, but that's not how the world works. God doesn't owe you no difficulty. Now, often we have great seasons of grace and great seasons. Listen, we're, we live in such a favorable time, even though these are difficult times. Our poor people, our poor people, if you took our poor people and put them anywhere else 
in the world, most of them would be well off. So we're blessed. So we have to be careful of not having a mentality. We have to come to God with, a, with an attitude of humility, knowing that God doesn't owe me and that everything I receive from him is a gift and a blessing. Peter said this because he had made some statements himself, you know. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, which is becoming more and more important to me. <laughs> now that I'm getting older than everybody. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do you get grace? You get humble. How do you get gifts? How do you, how do you get the grace of healing? How do you get the grace? How, if you want God to, to work in your life, it begins with humility. Humbling yourself before God and say, God, I need help. God, I've messed up. God's been so gracious to me so many, so many, so many times where I have come to him and said, God, I did a stupid thing. Can you help me get out of this? Can you help me get out of this bad decision? He's gracious. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. So the first element, desperate prayer, is humility. The second element is faith. To the woman, he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. To the woman, he said, your faith has made you well. To Jairus, he said, while he was speaking, as they came to the house, and they said, your daughter has died. He said, Jesus said to her, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. Hebrews tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So this is the this is the weird position of faith. God doesn't owe me, but he wants me to come expecting. <laughs> Not because he owes me but because of who he is. I, I, I can come to him not because, oh God, I've been paying my tithes. I think you owe me, but no. And, but God, because I see that you're a good, loving, compassionate God. That you're merciful. You're kind. I see what you've done. In, I, because you have already done so much for me, I see. And so I can come to you with expectation I can come to you with faith. I'm not condemned. I'm not humbling myself over here because I'm condemned. I'm not humbling myself because you have declared me unworthy. I'm humbling myself because I'm declaring that you are my source and you are my help. And I'm expecting and believing that you are the only one who's really able to help me. Desperate prayer for desperate times.
Let's stand. It's always oversimplified. There is a great connection group that's starting next Sunday about how to talk to God. It'll be in the second hour. If you haven't signed up for a life group, if you need to be a part of a group, this would be a great group. Understanding how to talk to God. Because what? Five-week class. Five weeks. All right. Lord, we just come to you today. We're delighted in who you are. You came to show us the Father. You came to show us such grace and compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness that we can boldly come before the throne of grace to receive grace to help in time of need. And we don't come before the throne because we have earned it or deserve it or because you owe it to us. We come because of the work of your work on the cross, your complete work that paves the way, that allows us to come and boldly come before your throne and say, God, it's almost like you're inviting us to crawl up on your lap like a little girl with her father. And say, Dad, this is what I need. Oh, you are a loving Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Lord bless you. Have a great day.